0: Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. I want to keep bringing y'all high-quality content, but I cannot do that without your support. So please help buy me a cup of coffee every month and join the Ward Republic by chipping in five dollars per month through the supporting listener link in the show notes page. I am not part of a fancy podcast network, and I don't like the restrictions that come along with certain advertising campaigns. So I'm coming to y'all with my hat in my hand. So please help me keep this show going and keep it independent by doing your part and chipping in. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I do also have a cash app profile for the show. So one-time contributions can be sent there. And all of this information is listed in the show notes page as well. And don't forget that Ward Republic membership includes a monthly video conference with myself and the other Ward Republic members. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold bags. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page, and if you use it, I will get a 1% commission, so that'll also help keep the show going. So click on my link in that show notes page and fuel monetary decentralization today. And if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you the group invite. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. All right. And today we are going to be wrapping up our senatorial series, this time with an essay from the devil himself, Alexander Hamilton. This is Federalist number 65. It was from the New York packet on Friday, March 7th, 1788. And Hamilton starts off, To the people of the state of New York, The remaining powers which the plan of the convention allots to the Senate in a distinct capacity are comprised in their participation with the executive in the appointment to offices and in their judicial character as a court for the trial of impeachments. As in the business of appointments the executive will be the principal agent, the provisions relating to it will most properly be discussed in the examination of that department. We will, therefore, conclude this head with a view of the judicial character of the Senate. A well-constituted court for the trial of impeachments is an object not more to be desired than difficult to be obtained in a government wholly elective. The subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. They are of a nature which may with peculiar propriety be denominated political, as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. The prosecution of them for this reason will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community and to divide it into parties more or less friendly or inimical to the accused." In many cases, it will connect itself with the pre-existing factions and will enlist all their animosities, partialities, influence, and interest on one side or on the other. And in such cases, there will always be the greatest danger that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt. The delicacy and magnitude of a trust which so deeply concerns the political reputation and existence of every man engaged in the administration of public affairs Speak for themselves. The difficulty of placing it rightly in a government resting entirely on the basis of periodical elections will as readily be perceived when it is considered that the most conspicuous characters in it will, from that circumstance, be too often the leaders or the tools of the most cunning or the most numerous faction, and on this account can hardly be expected to possess the requisite neutrality towards those whose conduct may be the subject of scrutiny. All right, so here in his opening salvo, Hamilton is setting the stage for what this essay is going to be about. So he's going to talk about how do you get rid of these senators? And his theory relies on impeachment basically reserved to the proper branch. So he doesn't really address the Senate gets to be the judge in its own case. So if a senator is going to be impeached, then his fellow senators are going to be the ones who get to judge him. He does not address that. I wish he would have. But again, notice what he's doing, just like so many of the other Federalist essays that we've read, a Federalist point of view, not necessarily Federalist as in actual Federalist essays, but from the Federalist point of view, think about what he's doing here. He's saying that, look, if you trust it to the House, these people are just going to be the representatives of the most numerous and cunning faction. So again, he was very elitist, very, very elitist, and he thought the common mob was nothing better than a rabble. So Hamilton is saying you cannot trust this power to the House of Representatives because the people are going to be led astray and they're just going to get rid of senators for the sake of getting rid of senators. I think he's wrong there because the power to appoint senators was given to the state legislatures, not the state societies as as a body politic, but the state legislatures. So the state legislatures could have been shielded from some of the excesses of democracy and had the senators started acting contrary to the instructions of their state legislatures, then the state legislature has the autonomy and the independence to go in there and remove them. That's how it should have been set up, in my opinion. Unfortunately, that's not what we got. But this, I, I'm highlighting this because, again, that's what the Federalists turned to over and over again. They said, look, we just have these state demagogues, and they're just going to obstruct it just for the sake of obstructing it because they don't like it anyway. And so... Keep that in mind as we move throughout this essay. This one's relatively short, but keep that in mind as we move throughout the essay and Hamilton describes why he believes it's only the Senate who's capable of judging for itself in its own impeachment cases. But let's go ahead and get back to it. The convention, it appears, thought the Senate the most fit depository of this important trust. Those who can best discern the intrinsic difficulty of the thing will be least hasty in condemning that opinion and will be most inclined to allow due weight to the arguments which may be supposed to have produced it. What, it may be asked, is the true spirit of the institution itself. Is it not designed as a method of national inquest into the conduct of public men? If this be the design of it, who can so properly be the inquisitors for the nation as the representatives of the nation themselves? It is not disputed that the power of originating the inquiry, or in other words, of preferring the impeachment, ought to be lodged in the hands of one branch of the legislative body. Will not the reasons which indicate the propriety of this arrangement strongly plead for an admission of the other branch of that body to share of the inquiry? The model from which the idea of this institution has been borrowed pointed out that course to the Convention. In Great Britain, it is the province of the House of Commons to prefer the impeachment and of the House of Lords to decide upon it. Several of the state constitutions have followed the example. As well the latter, as the former, seem to have regarded the practice of impeachments as a bridle in the hands of the legislative body upon the executive servants of the government. Is not this the true light in which it ought to be regarded? Where else than in the Senate could have been found a tribunal sufficiently dignified or sufficiently independent? What other body would be likely to feel confidence enough in its own situation to preserve unawed and uninfluenced the necessary impartiality between an individual accused and the representatives of the people his accusers? All right, and so this is what I was alluding to earlier. So here Hamilton is saying, look, the convention thought it wisest to place the power of actually removing senators in the office of the Senate itself he does not address any of the negative aspects of that as far as conflict of interest or people are going to side innately with themselves, right? So the Senate, because other senators don't want to be removed, they're never going to vote to remove somebody else. That's my opinion. I think time has definitely proven that correct. So it's interesting, too, because he asked towards the end of this, he says, what other body could have confidence enough in its own situation? Basically, what other body can be independent enough to do this? And it's interesting because the Federalists, that was the primary reason they wanted to have a completely independent judiciary so that they could interpret laws with no fear of reprisal, no fear of removal, so on and so forth. There very little fear of removal. Now, Hamilton does address that particular question. He's going to go on to ask, should or could the Supreme Court have been relied upon to have this authority or been entrusted with this authority? So it's interesting because this is exactly what the anti-federalists feared, that the Senate would become so independent that they could never be removed. A lot of similar arguments to what they said about having an independent federal judiciary. But Hamilton is saying, no, 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 this is a good thing. This is actually a wonderful thing because these men are so independent in their station. We can always trust them to do the right thing. And if any of them need to be removed, look, the popular house can bring the charges But then the Senate itself can remove their co-conspirators whenever they have done wrong. And that just hasn't been how it's played out. I I mean, it's not been how it's played out at all. As a matter of fact, since the ratification of the Constitution, there have only been 15 senators ever expelled. Uh, One of them was William Blunt. He was expelled in 1797. And the charge brought against him was anti-Spanish conspiracy slash treason And then the other 14 senators were all expelled during the War for Southern Independence. So understandable why it would happen then if those states had seceded. I'm assuming some of these senators may not have even been expelled except for in name because they they probably resigned if I had to guess. But so throughout the entire period since 1789, only 15 senators have been removed and 14 of them were removed during the Confederate War. So let's go ahead and get back to the essay. But again, I think this proves that Hamilton is, he's a liar, he's a snake, and he cannot be trusted when he talks about how these men are going to behave once they hold offices of power. And that reflects, in my opinion, directly on him because of how he behaved. But let's go ahead and get back to it. Could the Supreme Court have been relied upon as answering this description? It is much to be doubted whether the members of that tribunal would at all times be endowed with so eminent a portion of fortitude as would be called for in the execution of so difficult a task, and it is still more to be doubted whether they would possess the degree of credit and authority which might on certain occasions be indispensable towards reconciling the people to a decision that should happen to clash with an accusation brought by their immediate representatives. A deficiency in the first would be fatal to the accused, and the last dangerous to the public tranquility. The hazard in both these respects could only be avoided, if at all, by rendering that tribunal more numerous than would consist with a reasonable attention to economy. The necessity of a numerous court for the trial of impeachments is equally dictated by the nature of the proceeding. This can never be tied down by such strict rules, either in the delineation of the offense by the prosecutors or in the construction of it by the judges, as in common cases serve to limit the discretion of courts in favor of personal security." There will be no jury to stand between the judges who are to pronounce the sentence of the law and the party who is to receive or suffer it. The awful discretion which a court of impeachments must necessarily have to doom, to honor, or to infamy the most confidential and the most distinguished characters of the community forbids the commitment of the trust to a small number of persons. These considerations seem alone sufficient to authorize a conclusion that the Supreme Court would have been an improper substitute for the Senate As a court of impeachment, there remains a further consideration which will not a little strengthen this conclusion. It is this, the punishment which may be the consequence of conviction upon impeachment is not to terminate the chastisement of the offender. After having been sentenced to a perpetual ostracism from the esteem and confidence and honors and emoluments of his country, he will still be liable to prosecution and punishment in the ordinary course of law." Would it be proper that the persons who had disposed of his fame and his most valuable rights as a citizen in one trial should, in another trial for the same offense, be also the disposers of his life and his fortune? Would there not be the greatest reason to apprehend that error in the first sentence would be the parent of error in the second sentence? That the strong bias of one decision would be apt to overrule the influence of any new lights which might be brought to vary the complexion of another decision? Those who know anything of human nature will not hesitate to answer these questions in the affirmative and will be at no loss to perceive that by making the same persons judges in both cases, those who might happen to be the objects of prosecution would, in a great measure, be deprived of the double security intended them by a double trial. The loss of life in a state would often be virtually included in a sentence which, in its terms, imported nothing more than dismission from a present and disqualification for a future office. It may be said that the intervention of a jury in the second instance would obviate the danger. But juries are frequently influenced by the opinions of judges. They are sometimes induced to find special verdicts, which refer the main question to the decision of the court. Who would be willing to stake his life and his estate upon the verdict of a jury acting under the auspices of judges who had predetermined his guilt? Would it have been an improvement of the plan to have united the Supreme Court with the Senate in the formation of the Court of Impeachments? This union would certainly have been attended with several advantages, but would they not have been overbalanced by the signal disadvantage already stated arising from the agency of the same judges in the double prosecution to which the offender would be liable? To a certain extent, the benefits of that union will be obtained from making the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court the President of the Court of Impeachments, as is proposed to be done in the plan of the convention, while the inconveniences of an entire incorporation of the former into the latter will be substantially avoided. This was perhaps the prudent main. I forbear to remark upon the additional pretext for clamor against the judiciary, which so considerable an augmentation of its authority would have afforded. So, Hamilton's saying here he doesn't think that the Supreme Court's going to be independent enough to always maintain a fair and impartial view when it comes to the impeachment of senators or removal of senators. I think he's wrong with that because when he argued in favor of the Supreme Court, he specifically talked about the high level of independence and Brutus told us Brutus, the anti-federalist told us that the judges were actually being set up to be so independent as to become independent of heaven itself. So he thought that they were subject to no sort of constraints. Once we get John Marshall, we definitely see that they were the arbiters of their own power. They got to act as judge, jury and executioner in their own case. And, Every time, just about, without fail, except for Barron v. Baltimore, Marshall decided in a very nationalist manner. He, he always decided in favor of the general government. Again, that one case accepted. But then Hamilton goes on to talk about, well, look, if you entrust this power to the Supreme Court and the senator gets removed, they're going to be stripped of the honors and emoluments of their country. Oh my God, boo-hoo. They acted in a corrupt manner and now they don't get to suckle at the taxpayer's teat? Oh, the humanity. And then he's, he's talking about how they're going to be sub, subjected to double trials and this, that, and the other. And, and I just, I don't buy that. I don't buy that because we already had in the Constitution, we already had in the Bill of Rights a protection. Well, I guess at this point, let me back up. I'm sorry. So the Bill of Rights had not been incorporated to the Constitution yet. And I don't mean incorporation as in applied to the states, I just mean it had not been written into the Constitution yet. They had not been adopted as amendments. But when you get the Bill of Rights, you have a protection in there against double jeopardy. A lot of the Anti-Federalists were already calling for all of this. Hamilton knew that people wanted that added to the document. So for him to sit here and say, well, not only are they going to be stripped of the honors and emoluments of their country, but they're also going to be punished in the regular course of law, and they're going to be doomed to infamy and this, that, and the other good that's what they deserve but they're not going to be subjected to a double trial again we were going to have within just a matter of a couple of years a a few months we were going to have a protection against double jeopardy so they would not have been subjected to what Hamilton's saying they would have been he i mean and again it's not like he did not know that there was a lot of clamor even in his own home state of new york It's not like he didn't know there was a lot of clamor from the other side to have that added to a formal Bill of Rights. He knew that. He knew that. But again, he was a smooth talker, and here he is doing his best to obfuscate the issue and say, look, this is all the negative things that could come out of this if we lodge this power in another branch. I think he was wrong. Obviously, I'll admit my bias freely. I do not like Hamilton. I do not like any of the Hamiltonians. But here he is clearly lying. He is clearly lying when he says this, so we don't need to let that side off the hook whenever we start thinking about these things and how they've impacted modern society. But let's go ahead and get back to the essay here. From here, what he's going to do is go on and ask to say, well, should we have maybe constituted a special court? So let's get back to it. What had have been desirable to have composed the court for the trial of impeachments, a person's wholly distinct from the other departments of the government? There are weighty arguments as well against as in favor of such a plan. To some minds, it will not appear a trivial objection that it could tend to increase the complexity of the political machine and to add a new spring to the government, the utility of which would be at best questionable. But an objection which will not be thought by any unworthy of attention is this. A court formed upon such a plan would either be attended with a heavy expense or might in practice be subject to a variety of casualties and inconveniences. It must either consist of permanent officers stationary at the seat of government and of course entitled to fixed and regular stipends or of certain officers of the state governments to be called upon whenever an impeachment was actually dependent. It will not be easy to imagine any third mode materially different which could rationally be proposed. As the court, for reasons already given, ought to be numerous, the first scheme will be reprobated by every man who can compare the extent of the public wants with the means of supplying them. The second will be espoused with caution by those who will seriously consider the difficulty of collecting men dispersed over the whole Union, the injury to the innocent from the procrastinated determination of the charges which might be brought against them, the advantage to the guilty from the opportunities which delay would afford to intrigue and corruption and in some cases the detriment to the state from the prolonged inaction of men whose firm and faithful execution of their duty might have exposed them to the persecution of an intemperate or designing majority in the House of Representatives. Though this latter supposition may seem harsh, and might not be likely often to be verified, yet it ought not to be forgotten that the demon of faction will, at certain seasons, extend his scepter over all numerous bodies of men. And here I think Hamilton's bringing up an interesting point where he's asking, look, we could maybe have a special court of impeachment stationed with temporary officers from the state governments. I think that would have been a wonderful thing. Now, granted, in 1788, I understand that ease of movement was not nearly as easy as it is today, right? So they're going around in horse and buggy. Ox drone carts, this, that, and the other. they got to contend with mud and everything else. Now we have airplanes, cars, trains, buses, whatever you want to take. Basically, we have it right there at our fingertips. So I understand. That would have entailed a good bit of time passing before the officers could be assembled if you did it the way that he said with the state governments. However... That would have actually given the states a very powerful voice in the process, right? And they wouldn't just be, in this case, the senators would not just be subjected to the judgments of their own state legislature. If you have a cohort, let's say, of 10 randomly selected states, and then you tell these randomly selected states, hey, choose your officers. We're going to convene on this date. We're going to have an impeachment hearing against Senator X. That is wonderful. In concept, that would be a wonderful thing because, again, you're returning power to the states. But that was anathema to Hamilton. He did not want that. Hamilton was the most nationalist of all the nationalists. And he did not want the states to have that sort of power. And then he's also, again, he's saying, look, if you turn it over to the states to another risk that you're going to run is that they're going to be subjected to the intemperate and designing majority in the House of Representatives. So he's saying they're going to cave to popular pressure. So, again, I think it's more Hamilton made some... Decent arguments against it, at least for the time, because of the, the difficulty with travel at that point. But at the same time, I think Hamilton's true nature here is is really shining through. He loathes the House of Representatives. He does not want them having any more than what they absolutely have to do with this process. But even with this design, you still could have had the House of Representatives bring the charges against the senator, and then you still have a somewhat semi-independent body making the judgment in the case. You're not leaving that solely to the discretion of the senatorial body itself. You're not letting them be the judges in their own calls. So I think that would have been wonderful. I'm actually kind of sad we didn't get that, just, again, specifically because it would have given the states such a powerful voice in the process. But let's go ahead and get back to the essay. This is going to be the conclusion. But though one or the other of the substitutes which have been examined, or some other that might be devised, should be thought preferable to the plan in this respect, reported by the convention, it will not follow that the constitution ought for this reason to be rejected. If mankind were to resolve to agree in no institution of government, until every part of it had been adjusted to the most exact standard of perfection, society would soon become a general scene of anarchy, and the world a desert." Where is the standard of perfection to be found? Who will undertake to unite the discordant opinions of a whole community in the same judgment of it, and to prevail upon one conceited projector to renounce his infallible criterion for the fallible criterion of his more conceited neighbor? To answer the purpose of the adversaries of the Constitution, they ought to prove not merely that particular provisions in it are not the best which might have been imagined, but that the plan upon the whole is bad and pernicious. Publius. And when reading this, it's really hard to think, or not to think, excuse me, what might have been had the framers incorporated the states into this process the way that Hamilton was talking about, where you would convene temporary state-appointed officers to hear the impeachment trials versus letting the Senate hear it itself. It's infuriating to think about that and then put it in context with how different could the Yazoo land scandal have gone? How differently could the Credit Mobilier scandal have gone? There are several instances throughout history. Think about the McCarthy era. There there are several instances throughout history where it's like, how different could things have been if the states had had a role in that and they could have actually exercised the authority to remove that senator? Again, it is so difficult not to think what might have been, even though that may be a fruitless endeavor. So this concludes our study of the original Senate as the Federalists pitched it and also as the Anti-Federalists feared it. I think the Anti-Federalists have been proven correct for the most part in terms of how the Senate actually played out, especially post-17th Amendment, although I do think the Anti-Federalists were incorrect in saying that the Senate was going to become the all-consuming body. I think that is more in line with the federal judiciary, and I think the Senate has mostly become a useless aristocracy, except for it knows how to legislate itself some kickbacks. So I think the president has become an elected king. I, I don't think the Senate is the puppet master behind the executive office as the anti-federalists feared. But at the same time, I do think that the Senate has again set itself up to be mostly a useless aristocracy, but thank you all again for your time and for tuning in. Please remember if you find value in the podcast to consider becoming a supporting listener and don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your gold backs today And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to you all next time.